Welcome to podcasts recorded live at the Center for Spiritual Living in Portland, Oregon. Listen past the end of the podcast to find out more about our spiritual center and ways that you may collaborate with us. Happy Sunday, everyone, and a, a grand welcome to those of you listening to our many podcasts. We're working on something a little different this month, uh, and I think I'll start off with a quote of Ernest Holmes. Uh, this is from the Science of Mind textbook. The founder of uh, our particular denomination had to say this. He says, we must learn that the mind can, if we desire, be controlled so that we can gradually come into the habitual state of thinking the way we choose to think. So as you know, one of the tenets of science of mind, or one of our closely held beliefs, is that our thinking drives our experience of the world. That as we think, so we experience life. And in its, uh, I, I suppose, in its most uh, elemental way, uh, if we have uh, generally thoughts of freedom and love and joy, then that's what we'll experience in life. And if, on the other hand, we're filled with worry and trouble and self-doubt, often that is what we will experience in life. So it's not surprising then that Ernest Holmes does place uh, some importance on this idea of our thinking, and in particular, our habitual thought patterns, those thought patterns that, even without us consciously aware of them, are running around in the background of our brain. So this month, we're using Stephen Guise's mini habits to give us a, a leg up, some tools, if you will, for creating new habits in our minds, for allowing that unconscious part of ourselves to actually reinforce what we would like to see. You've probably all heard that idea of like a tape running on our head in the background, right? And normally we've portrayed that in terms of a, a negative tape. Maybe it's a tape of self-criticism or a, a, a tape of not having enough, right? And, and we talk about undoing that. This month, what I'm suggesting is we can actually build our own tape so that without even having to concentrate on our good, there can be a little tape in the background that says, Oh my gosh, of course you're worthy of the grand life. Of course you're here to make a difference in the world. There are no obstacles in your way. Wouldn't it be nice if that little tape running in the back of our head sounded a little more like that? We have that power, and this month we're on it, so to speak. First, though, to start out today, I want to talk a little bit about brain science. So one of the things that Ernest Holmes didn't have the benefit of is some of the modern science that we're aware of today. And although this will... Uh, I'm totally oversimplifying, and for those of you who do know about science, uh, I expect to get some pushback a little bit later for reducing brain science down to just two parts of our brain, but, but I think it will illustrate. So first of all, the part of our brain that works on this habit, this idea of habitual thought, is our basal ganglia. And it's, it's towards the bottom of our brain. And it allows us to do pattern matching and pattern creation. So if you think about it, what is a habit but it is a pattern. And so uh, last week I shared the, the pattern of me getting up in the morning. And some mornings, believe it or not, it's not until I'm in the closet needing to make a conscious choice of what clothes I want to wear 
that I really am making conscious choices. Up until that point, I'm getting up, I'm feeding the dogs, I'm doing the repetitive things that I do every day, and I can do it without even thinking about it. So I want to share something with you. Um, this week, as part of something we'll talk about a little, uh, in a little bit, I was trying to be more conscious of what I was doing this morning and making it literally choice by choice as best I could. And, and in fact, I was picking someone up from church and they'll tell you I was 20 minutes late. And part of it was because a lot of what is unconscious, I don't consciously even know how to do it. So I stood there in the shower looking at the single little knob trying to remember now keep in mind i'd turn off that part of my brain that would just do it as a habit and i was literally trying to decide is it this way that does the hot water or is it this way that does the hot water right i have done it so many thousands of times that of course the habit part of my brain that basal ganglia could do it as a habit but my conscious brain literally could not have told you which way. This is important because if we didn't have that habit-forming part of our brain, every single time you went to do something, it would be new. It's like, figure, try figuring out how to tie your shoelaces every single time. Try remembering which way to turn the knobs on your stove or other things every single time. The basal ganglia is an unceasing, tirelessly efficient repeater. The things that would actually take a lot of brain power and exhaust you, it does effortlessly. And in fact, one of the ways they know how these sensors in the brain, how they work, is because some people have those areas of the brain damaged. And if your basal ganglia is damaged, you know what? Your life is exhausting because it's the prefrontal cortex, your actual decision maker is on work all the time. You literally are having to decide which side of the bed should I get up on. You're literally having to decide, oh, that's right, I need to go downstairs to feed the dogs. Do you have a sense of just how how amazingly tiring that would be if every single thought you had to make as a conscious decision. And that's what people are faced with if that part of their brain doesn't work. So it's very efficient. It's tireless. You never have to worry about getting too tired to fulfill its functions. It just carries you along and gets probably 80% of your daily chores done without you having to think of it. A wonderful thing. But highly repetitive. That part of our brain would not question whether drinking that coffee in the morning is actually good for me. That part of my brain would not say, you know, Larry, there are probably better dog foods than what you're feeding your sweet dogs. That part of my brain would just keep up the patterns. It does not question them. It would say, well, if two scoops of ice cream are good, another two... <laughs> would be equally good, <laughs> and a whole big bowl of it would therefore be pretty darn fine, right? <laughs> okay, 
So let's talk about the other part of our brain. Thank heavens, we also have a prefrontal, prefrontal cortex, and it's located uh, right behind your forehead here. And this is kind of the smart manager. This is the part of you that has motivations. This is the part of you that analyzes things. This is the part of you that gets more information in. And it's also the part that feeds that information into the other parts of our brain. So if we do want to make a change in our habits... First of all, it has to start not from the part of the brain that reenacts the habits, but from the part of the brain that's the manager, the controller, the prefrontal cortex. It actually has to decide, you know, Larry, maybe just one cup of coffee in the morning rather than the whole pot would be a better pattern to follow, for instance. <laughs> Or if you have some plumbing done, which we had not done too long ago in our bathroom sink, somehow the plumber reversed the hot and the cold. <laughs> and so it's my prefrontal oh, no. cortex that has to remind me in that bathroom, actually I can't follow the old pattern or I'm going to be sitting there waiting for hot water for a really, 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 really long time. Okay, so these two parts of the brain have to work in concept and, uh, concert, and I want to tell you uh, just a few more information about these two parts, and then we'll move on. So we talked about the, the, the bottom part of our brain, the basal ganglia, uh, as uh, requiring repetitive input from the smart manager. So the way we learn a new habit is the smart manager, the other part of our brain, keeps feeding in that repetition of an event. If it doesn't, you'll keep up the old habit forever. So it does require us over many times of repetition to set up the new pattern. It won't do it by itself. We have to initiate that new pattern. We have to repeat it often enough so that the other part of our brain, the basal ganglia, picks it up and starts doing it for us. Then it'll do the heavy lifting for us. We don't have to worry about it anymore. It doesn't evaluate the new habits. Once you've repeated it often enough, it simply will do them. It's the servant, if you want to think of our brain. It will simply reenact those over and over again for you. So if we can set up good ones, it becomes effortless. Now the smart, an smart manager, uh, of course, is the intelligent part. It's the conscious part of your brain, but it also tires easily. So we can't rely on our conscious activity to pull us through time and time again. We actually want to move it on to the part of the brain that will work automatically. The other part of our conscious brain is it likes to be rewarded to take up new ideas. And I want to talk a little bit about how we become motivated. So how does this efficient and smart manager go about picking up new habits? Well, it does it through willpower and motivation. And I want to start, first of all, with motivation. Who here has Googled their own names before? Has everyone here gone to Google and, and, and plugged in your own name just to see what was there? Well, I found out something really interesting the other day. I Googled myself, and guess what? I'm a motivational speaker. I am. I don't know. 
I don't know that I'd ever written that down before, but there it was. So, so someone believes it's true. It must be true. But do you know what the trouble with motivational speakers is? Unless you have them motivationally speaking at you all the time, <laughs> right? The weekend's over. Has anyone ever gone on some kind of a spiritual or educational retreat and you all got fired up, you were going to change the world, and then Monday morning you're kind of back in your old life and in your old job, and like maybe you picked up one or two little things, but that level of enthusiasm and passion and greatness, that, that motivation to change the world somehow between, right, the end of the conference and the beginning of Monday morning, somehow it diminished. Well, this is the trouble with motivation. The other trouble with motivations is our brain has no trouble with conflicting motivations. So for example, do I know that a healthy diet would be great for me? And I'm motivated in that direction. Honestly, I am. I would love to fit in to my clothes a little better. I would love it if I had that kind of athletic body that people who take care of themselves better than I do would have. I'm absolutely motivated to live a long time. And I know that a better diet would support me in that. And at the same time, I'm hugely motivated by sweets. <laughs> right? It's like my car automatically turns at bakeries. I swear it does. I don't even have to think about it. So that's the trouble with motivation. There are all kinds of motivations. There are motivations for our higher good, you might say, like diet and exercise, but there are equal and sometimes more compelling motivations for just wanting a little piece on a certain day and a donut might help. <laughs> And so our trouble with motivations, one, they diminish over time. Two, we can have conflicting ones without any trouble. And three, you can't depend on them. You can't depend on them. You can't say, tomorrow, I'm going to be super motivated around exercise. You know, today not so much, but tomorrow I'm putting it on the calendar. Tomorrow at 8 a.m. I'm going to find my motivation and I'm going to, right? We can't schedule it. It kind of waxes and wanes. We'll read an article about health and we'll, we'll go out and buy organic for a few weeks, right? What is it then? that can help us through. Because motivation is important. It's through motivation that we set some of the big picture things in our lives. We, we read a whole bunch of articles or a couple books about healthy eating, and there is an overwhelming desire to live longer and to eat better and to feel more fit. And so we do need that motivation. But I'm here to tell you, in the trenches, the other thing that we have to talk about is willpower. So the, the combination of motivation and willpower are actually what change our lives, what set up these new patterns. And I know willpower over the years has gotten a really bad rep for things. We think of it as somehow muscling it down. And am I strong enough to make that decision? And I think right now I'm called for a joke. <laughs> I think so. 
So John arrives home from work, and as soon as he sets foot in the door, his wife Miriam is on to him about a favorite topic, that they should go on a diet together. They should be motivated to lose weight, look better, live longer. This time she tells him that their friend Albert successfully quit smoking. Imagine that, John. Someone who smoked three packs a day for 20 years stopped smoking. Now that's what I call willpower, something I suspect that you don't have much of. Okay, said John, you want to see willpower? Well, here's willpower. I'm not going to eat dessert for the rest of my life. No cookies, no cake, no chocolate, nothing. And let's see if you can keep up with me. Let's see about your willpower. Well, remarkably, John kept to his word, and so did Miriam. One night, while John was sleeping, he heard some noise in the kitchen. Thinking perhaps it was a burglar, he got out of bed and crept into the kitchen to find his wife sitting at the table, devouring an entire pile of store-bought cookies. So you just couldn't keep your willpower up, said John. No, I was doing just fine, thank you very much. So what happened? Albert started smoking again. So I want to talk about that, actually. Uh, My mom was a lifetime smoker, and I'd like to share her story, if you will, about this idea of motivation and willpower. So when she was, uh, I think, 58 or 59, she had a heart attack, been smoking all of her life, and the doctor took her aside in the hospital and basically said, Mrs. Burnett, given your history of high blood pressure and heart disease and other things, Each one of those cigarettes is taking probably a year off your life. After your first heart attack, if you continue to smoke, the statistics are not pretty to look at. You can almost count on another one. And honestly, some of the tests we did around your breathing and other things point out to the fact you're also a prime candidate for cancer. Well, I got to tell you, this was a huge motivation for my mother. And, of course, in the hospital, you can't smoke. And she used that opportunity to have, uh, have us clean out her house of the, of the cigarettes and ashtrays and all of that kind of stuff. And she was going to be a non-smoker. And I will tell you what, her motivation lasted well until she was feeling fine. Her motivation, the desire to live longer, uh, to get rid of this fear of what might happen, it lasted several months, but once she was completely through her physical therapy and some other things that went with her hospital visit, once she was feeling good, once she was back into her, her old life, of, you know, going on walks and her bridge parties and the other things, her old habit came back with it. That was her motivation, but it didn't have much hold on her. There were the other things she wanted to do in conflict with her motivation. Her motivation waned. Do you want to know how she actually stopped smoking? One cigarette at a time. She used her willpower. Now, did she have willpower just to give up cold turkey? She didn't. She did not have that level of willpower. But she did have enough willpower to say, well, if yesterday 
I smoked 25 cigarettes. Today I will pace myself and I will smoke no more than 24 cigarettes. And so that's how she did it. Just by extent, she would look up and it's like two o'clock. Well, normally I have a cigarette with some tea in the afternoon. I think I'll just wait till dinner time, right? She would delay having that cigarette. And some days she'd have far fewer cigarettes, right? Some days she would actually exceed her goals, but she always kept to her goal. And I, and I can't remember. It took her like 18 months. She didn't, it wasn't literally one less cigarette every day. It, was, it took longer than that. I can't remember how her goal worked. But that's how she was successful, by using her willpower. Now, above that, of course, was her motivation. She wanted to live... She, well, actually, I think she wanted to wait for grandchildren, and I, I'm sorry that I, I, I disappointed her in, in that respect, but, uh, but she wanted to live longer. She had things to do, right? So the motivation, clear, that was in her decision-making process. This is what I wanted to do, but motivation alone, not enough. So let me talk just briefly then about this idea of willpower. What is willpower? It's mental control exerted to do something or to restrain our impulses. So it's mental control exerted to do something or restrain our impulses. And do you know why most of us think that willpower is awkward and not a way to go about doing things? It's because we pick something that is really huge that we want to change, and we level... Uh, if you will say, an initiate's level of willpower on it. We all have willpower, but until we have exercised it, until we have some confidence and experience with it, it's at a low level. This is one of the good news things about willpower, though. As you exercise it, as you're successful in making changes, it emboldens you and it actually builds up that muscle. It's like a muscle, but you typically need to start small so that you build up your confidence, you have some success in using it, and then you become emboldened to make uh, bigger changes and more lasting changes. But always important to start small. So let me use another example in my life. Um, I was trying to, and for those of you in 12-step programs, I need to apologize to you. I forgot what my AA birth date is. Can you believe it? I was trying to look it up on my calendar today because I always had it posted. And I know it's uh, in August, so I'm thinking I have an AA birthday here coming up, but I'm going to have to, to refigure that out. So I've been clean and sober for, um, gosh, close to 20 years now. And, uh, and well, thank you. Thank you. So let, let us once again model how stopping drinking works. Now, I wish I could say that I had simply been motivated to stop, and I stopped. I certainly had every motivation, right? My life was unmanageable. I was in trouble a lot of the time. I was missing work. I was doing all of the typical things an alcoholic might do. And absolutely in awareness of my motivation, why this wasn't the way I wanted to live my life. But I would tell you, I'd been drinking for 10 years with those same motivations <laughs> being present. It didn't just occur to me one day that it wasn't good for me, right? The motivations had been there right along. Here is why 12-step programs are successful. Because it's one day at a time. You're not saying to yourself, I'm just never going to drink again. 
You're simply saying that for today, and when you're new to the program, they'll even tell you this hour, (laughs) I'm not going to take a drink. And its success is taking that down incrementally into areas that your willpower can handle. The other piece of uh, what's marvelous about the 12-step programs is you'll get a sponsor, and if you have a sponsor like mine, uh, he'll say something like, oh, and Larry, I'd like to see your schedule for making your 90 meetings in 90 days. And of course, it's like, oh, really? I have to do 90 meetings? In ni- I really have to go to 90 AA meetings in 90 days? But do you see what we're setting up here? What is it that the basal ganglia loves? Repetition. Repetition. It's building the habit in of doing something that's self-supportive. It's building in even a schedule of when you'll attend meetings so that you can always count on that level of support in your life. So it's repetition... It's adding to your incentives and your, your sense of, uh, of being able to do this. And I remember even sometimes when I would get in trouble and I would call my sponsor and I would say, I'm really struggling today. i got to tell you, I feel way more motivated to numb the pain I'm going through than I feel motivated to stay sober. And my sponsor would simply say, well, okay, why don't you have that drink after your 5 o'clock meeting? Now, now, th- now think about this for a moment. Those, again, those of you in 12 steps, it sounds like your sponsor was saying you should have a cocktail today. But what he was doing was saying, let's not worry about later on. Let us look to our next point of inspiration. Let us look to another repetition of what's important, that meeting, knowing that after I had been through that meeting, I wouldn't want to drink. So it wasn't, what he was cleverly doing is saying, I understand your cross-motivation here. I understand what's bugging you. I acknowledge that. But what I know is over the rest of this day and up till your meeting, when you'll have more people to draw upon, when you'll have more things going on that can support you in not drinking, all you have to do is look that far ahead. All you have to do is stay sober for the next six hours until your meeting. And then we can start again. Then you can evaluate your motivation then. But in the meantime, you have sufficient willpower to do that. Make sense? So next week, here I am selling next week. You have to come back and I'll explain why. <laughs> so, so next week, I'm actually going to have printed up for you the steps for building many habits into your own lives. So, so next week, we have the guts of, uh, of building many habits of how to break down something that the f- uh, prefrontal cortex wants to do, how we can literally break it down into small enough steps so that our willpower can take care of it. It is almost a guarantee for success for new good habits. So looking forward to doing that next week with you. Uh, so quick review, habits are started or changed by using motivation and willpower Motivation by itself is not reliable. You can't count on it. 
Willpower is reliable, but we often need to build it as we go. We need to have some success with small things and build up our willpower. And willpower can be depleted. It's one of the reasons why we have to keep up these processes long enough, that repetition, until it becomes part of our habitual nature to be good to ourselves and have good habits. Homework, same homework as last week, create two positive statements about yourself each day this week, and as a mini habit, build it into something you do every day. We want that element of repetition, and it's best if it's the same time, something you do every day. So for me, I have it written on uh, my bathroom mirror where I brush my teeth. I just wrote two statements. And that's my reminder to make two statements, two positive statements about myself and about that day. Make sense? Okay. So I'm going to do a quick reading for many habits and we'll have a prayer and uh, we'll move on. Many habits are so small that they're willpower efficient. You can have multiple many habits even at once. Even busy and overwhelmed people can succeed with many habits. You can look at them as your day's foundation. These are the things that you will accomplish. But they only take a few minutes to do. They're building that sense of willpower and that sense of repetition. After that, you can do anything you want, whether it's bonus reps or other activities. It's flexible to fit your current lifestyle, but it's the crowbar of personal development. It can leverage initially small habits into your life into something much, much bigger. Let us pray. There is one power, one presence, one life, and one goodness. There is only this one thing, and I call it God. And what I know about God is that it is infinite in its power. That when I have a a motivation I can use, I can draw upon God's power as my own. There is no separation between me and God. And so therefore God's will is is part of the will that I get to exercise. That God's intelligence is part of the motivation that I find uh, for doing the things that I choose to do. And that ultimately, as I practice through motivation and willpower, my life gets better because my thinking improves. My life improves because the thoughts that I have are directed more towards my end goals. Initially, perhaps requiring my uh, prefrontal brain to work a little overtime to get tired. But with repetition, I know God is here to serve me through the part of my brain that simply will pick up marvelously good habits. And as it is true for me, I know without question that that potential exists for everyone in this room. Everyone here can learn how to use their brains more efficiently. Everyone here can begin uh, living the lives they desire through better habits. And so for this, I'm grateful. Uh, For this, I give great thanks. I let it be. And together we say, and so it is. Thank you so much for being here today. So glad you were here. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, we'd love to have you visit in person. The Portland Center for Spiritual Living is located at 6211 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. We have inspirational services at 9 and 11 a.m. every Sunday. Our mission is to open hearts 
ignite minds, and to make a difference. If you'd like to support our center and its podcasts, you can donate online at www.pcsl.us slash donate. Our website is also the place to learn more about what's going on at the center or to contact us. Allow us to become part of your extended community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living.